0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. My name is Sarah Dong. I'm your host and a MedPeds ID fellow. Here on February, we use patient cases and consult questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. I will present pieces of the story of a patient's case and will pause along the way to hear from our guest consultant. I have our usual disclaimer that all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. I'm excited to introduce our guest for today, Dr. Thomas Russo. Dr. Thomas Russo is the Chief of Infectious Diseases and a Professor of Medicine and Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Buffalo Jacobs School of Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. He has an active nationally funded translational research program focused on gram-negative bacilli, including E. coli, acinetobacter, and hypervirulent variant of Klebsiella pneumoniae. He is also an active clinical teacher who spends time with medical students, residents, and ID fellows. Hi, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. Um, Before we jump into the case, I do start by asking a question. As everyone's favorite culture podcast, we'd love to hear a little piece of culture that brings you happiness, something that you enjoy.
1: Well, this is a question that I often like to ask on rounds to medical students and uh, interns and fellows. So I was a classics major in college, and the question that I like to ask them is if you've ever heard of Virgil. Now, often, I'll get a look like, Ooh, <laughs> Virgil. <laughs> then I'll say, perhaps, have you ever heard of or read the Aeneid? And often, I'll get a bit of a blank stare as well. <laughs> then I might go on and say, well, you ever heard of Homer, the Iliad, or the Odyssey? And I do a whiff better. <laughs> so Virgil was a Roman poet that wrote one of the great classical works called the Aeneid. And for those of you that are looking for a little, as, I, as we like to say in Boston, my hometown, culture, you know, <laughs> it could be uh, uh, something for you at least to look up, um, minimally do uh, Wikipedia style. And so, uh, <laughs> you, you know, you'll uh, feel, feel that you learn something outside of medicine, which is always a good thing.
0: I love it. Um, so, today our consult question is about a 50 year old with fever and gram negative bacteremia. And so, I will tell you a little bit about the case and then we'll, we'll hear from you and get your thoughts. So, we have a 50 year old male with diabetes type 2 controlled on metformin, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia. He presented two days ago to his local community hospital with red upper quadrant pain and fever to 104. He said he had felt okay earlier in the day, but as it progressed and went into the evening, he developed fevers and chills. At this point, he said he had no vomiting, diarrhea, cough, runny nose, URI-type symptoms. He had no dysuria. He had no known COVID contacts. And while in the emergency room at the local hospital, he had COVID testing, which was negative. He had routine labs, which were unremarkable, as well as a chest x-ray and a CT abdomen and pelvis. And then he also had negative uh, tick-borne illness testing, so Lyme anaplasma babesia. Uh, Since they didn't really find anything in particular, he was discharged home with a plan for supportive care, thinking that maybe this was some sort of viral illness. But unfortunately, he came back the next day, this time to your hospital with persistent fever. But now he had abdominal pain and then the ongoing fatigue. He also developed new watery, non-bloody diarrhea, and then had a few episodes of emesis, which were also non-bloody. These GI symptoms were quite brief, and by the time he was in the emergency room and waiting to be seen, he was feeling better from a vomiting diarrhea standpoint, but was still having right upper quadrant pain. So on physical exam, he did appear uncomfortable, but was in no acute distress, He was tachycardic, but had no obvious murmur on his cardiac exam. He had diminished breath sounds with some tachypnea, but no focal focal sounds. He had no CVA tenderness. On his stomach, he had a soft abdomen, some right upper quadrant tenderness, but no rebound or guarding. And then he had some mild focal tenderness in the paraspinal muscles of his sort of mid-thoracic spine. His neuro exam was normal. His labs now, though, have significantly changed. He has new leukopenia with a white blood cell count of 1.2 from about eight or 9,000 at the um, prior hospital. He had thrombocytopenia with platelets in the 80s. His differential had 40% neutrophils, 17% bands, 1% atypicals, no eosinophils. He had hyponatremia with a sodium of 128, a slight AKI with a creatinine of 1.2, and his lactate was elevated to 8. His LFTs were notable for a total bilirubin of 1.3, AST of 83, and an ALT of 89. And his CRP was elevated over 200, so over the top part of the range on your lab. His CT imaging now showed on abdomen pelvis multiple hepatic lesions, and his CT chest had multifocal diffuse nodular airspace opacities. And there's actually one particular area that's concerning for possible early cavitation. So you get all this information, and someone calls and also lets you know now that his blood cultures, which he had two sets or four bottles, are all growing gram-negative rods. He had already been placed on empiric cefepime and metronidazole by the emergency room. And so I am going to pause here and see what you're thinking. You know, what gram-negative infections might explain a pretty dramatic presentation like this one?
1: Well, first off, I just want to sort of make a, a comment with this first presentation. The fever to 104 uh, really catches my attention and albeit uh, temperature magnitude per se isn't discriminatory for the nature of infection, that range of 104, other than perhaps influenza, uh, should really make you think about the possibility of a bacterial infection. Uh, So even though they didn't find anything on the initial workup, uh, obviously, uh, and a cold infection is still a consideration, uh, albeit it's interesting he had a, a negative CT and two days later, dramatic, and chest X-ray, and two days later, dramatic differences really supporting this is an uh, acute process going on, but uh, uh, minimally, he should have had blood cultures at that point, and depending on uh, how he looked, consideration for maybe a slightly more expansive uh, either workup or brief observation. Moving on, then, in terms of his subsequent presentation, obviously now things have changed dramatically. Uh, he's acutely ill, has a high lactic acid, uh, you know, an impressive uh, left shift on his white count, with actually uh, uh, low white cell count and low platelets, all of which suggests a serious, perhaps overwhelming bacterial infection, and. Then, uh, with lots of information given, the positive blood culture supports that. Now, if you didn't give me the blood culture result, I think many of us would be thinking uh, in terms of lungs involved, liver involved, uh, multiple sites of infection. Gram positives are really our best pathogens for what we like to call metastatic spread or multiple sites of infection being involved. And gram negatives do that a lot less well. And of course, the gram positive we're all so familiar with that does this quite well is staph aureus, where often from initial site of infection, it could go ahead and spread to heart valves, joints, bone, and uh, so multiple sites of infection uh, is not uncommon. And once heart valves are involved, then obviously they could be spread to additional sites uh, through embolic events. So You've given me the fact that he has gram-negative rods, and so I think that changes my thinking significantly because we generally do not see with gram-negative rods multiple sites of infection, and the most common place that we get bacteremia with gram-negative rods, someone from the community, one would think perhaps urinary tract infection, E. coli. However, at least on exam, he doesn't have any evidence of urinary tract infection. In a male, in the absence of prior catheterization, likewise, that would be unusual, so I think that sort of brings our thought process uh, uh, in a slightly different direction. So let me start with, I think, an entity that perhaps many people are thinking of, though I think we need some epidemiologic factors to help uh, for some of the things in our differential. And the first would be white-sided endocarditis. Uh, so that uh, potentially could make sense in terms of the pulmonary lesions. Uh, but gram negatives would be unusual unless this was an IV drug user, and we know in that setting that a variety of gram-negative, some of which could be of the exotic variety, could be the responsible pathogens. Uh, However, for him also to have hepatic lesions, one would have to speculate he has both right and left-sided disease. We'll get into the sort of ID questions of uh, travel, pets, uh, work and exposures and that sort of thing, but he would probably have to check a couple of those boxes Uh, at least in terms of his habits uh, for right and left-sided endocarditis with a gram-negative rod with native valves in place. Another entity we might not think of as often that actually could do this would be uh, pileoflebitis or septic vein thrombosis uh, of portal vein. And that usually involves some sort of uh, prior uh, pathology in the colon like diverticulitis or appendicitis with subsequent uh, seeding of the portal vein. And in that case, you could get then septic uh, emboli to the lungs, you could get then spread to the liver, uh, and that uh, perhaps would make sense. It's an unusual condition, but it would certainly fit. And I think lastly, something that comes into mind is well, could this just be something simple like cholecystitis, cholangitis, ascending infection with liver abscesses? Uh, maybe there were some prior, uh, if stones were not causing obstruction perhaps some sort of process in the pancreas, a tumor, et cetera, strictures in the common bile duct. However, I think it would be difficult to explain the pulmonary lesions in that setting uh, as well. And, and then lastly, in terms of things that I think is more common, though I think it's going to be uncommon maybe for a number of people that might be listening, uh, is this perhaps not that new but uh, increasingly recognized pathotype of Klebsiella pneumoniae, hypervirulent Klebsiella pneumoniae. Uh, and this is a, a fascinating pathotype of Klebsiella that interestingly doesn't behave like a gram negative. It's very good at causing multiple sites of infection, with the liver being a common site, um, but likewise uh, the lungs. And so that would fit particularly well. And then lastly, uh, you know, we're ID doctors, so we love to think uh, of the exotic. And maybe, and we'll perhaps hear a little bit more about uh, some of his epidemiologic history. But um, one thing just to sort of throw out there is a gram negative we don't think about a lot is Burkholderia maliae a It tends to be a disease of people that have exposure in Southeast Asia uh, unless you're working in a laboratory that studies that particular pathogen. Uh, and that certainly could cause a pneumonia and occasionally disseminated disease that can involve the liver as well. Uh, but I think this individual would have to have some uh, interesting epidemiologic exposure for that to fit. So maybe start, stop right there at this point, and we'll hear a little bit about uh, some of his uh, history, and we could sort of go from there and flesh out these possibilities.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I feel like the gram negatives uh, is not what I was expecting. Like you were saying, this is a great story for maybe Steph Arias, but um, was surprised to get gram negatives. So on social history, I'll tell you a little bit more. He lives in the mid-Atlantic U.S. with his wife, child, and a dog. Um, he works as an, in an office job, but has been working remotely from home um, during the COVID pandemic. He was born in Vietnam, but has lived in the U.S. since he was two years old. His last travel was back to Vietnam about 15 years ago. He stayed with his family in hotels and um, within the city at the time um, and has not traveled anywhere else internationally. He said he did go... Uh, As far as like unusual dietary exposures, he said nothing different. I did go on a picnic about a week ago, a little before all this started and had some shrimp and barbecue and things like that, but no other sort of unusual habits. And then uh, no drug use or uh, interesting hobbies that he let us know. As your patient is in the hospital, though, he continues to have these ongoing fevers that are quite high, 102, 103. Um, And his back pain began to worsen. And so, unfortunately, a lumbar spine MRI demonstrated an area of likely epidural abscess with concern for osteomyelitis and likely adjacent psoas abscess. And so, he undergoes an epidural abscess evacuation as well as percutaneous drainage of the largest hepatic abscess that they could access. And so, at this point, our blood cultures return with, dun-dun-dun, Klebsiella pneumoniae. And so, subsequently, his abscess cultures isolate the same organism, and you do a little bit of research and find that blood cultures from the outside hospital did ultimately grow Klebsiella as well. And so, you kind of started to mention this, and you know, I think when we had the Gram negatives back, there was suspicion for uh, this organism in particular. But can you talk to us a little bit and introduce? this hypervillic Klebsiella and how we should think of it compared to what we picture as the sort of classic Klebsiella?
1: Most of the Klebsiella infections in this country are caused by what I like to term classical Klebsiella pneumoniae. And even though uh, about as many as 30% of healthy individuals in the community will be colonized with Klebsiella pneumoniae, uh, generally it tends to cause infections in the healthcare setting. And usually, you know, most commonly needs a little help in terms of a breakdown of a mucosal or an epidural barrier, uh, lines in place, uh, intubation, et cetera. So in hospital, uh, uh, classical Klebsiella pneumonia infections become increasingly common uh, with pneumonia, urinary tract infection, occasionally line infections, wound infections uh, being uh, most common. Uh, occasionally part of a polymicrobial intraabdominal process if uh, there's disruption of, of the bowel mucosa. And really where these classical strains have gained their notoriety is they become extensively drug-resistant, uh, in some cases even pan-resistant, making them extraordinarily problematic to treat. And so in the, quote, superbug world, which uh, is generally uh, antimicrobial resistance connotes uh, something being a superbug, which is uh, probably not semantically accurate, at in, in least in, <laughs> in my opinion. But nonetheless, this in between uh, outbreaks of dengue and COVID, you know, these resistant gram-negative rods and occasionally gram-positives um, make the news and people talk about the post-antibiotic era and, um, you know, classical cell pneumoniae is one of the poster child's of these gram-negatives, perhaps along with the Cenotabacter Balmani and, and Pseudomonas, is sometimes been extraordinarily challenging to treat. So, by contrast, uh, hypervirulent Klebsella pneumoniae is a pathotype that has actually been around for a while. And if you look at molecular epidemiologic studies, probably since at least the late 1800s. But from a clinical point of view... The first report that seemed to recognize it was uh, from Taiwan, and this occurred in the uh, mid-1980s. And it described a syndrome that was really distinct from infections that we've come to know about, classical cell pneumoniae. Instead of being a healthcare-associated infection, these individuals were from the community. And interestingly, many of them were quite healthy, with no underlying diseases, though there was a bit of an over-representation of individuals that were diabetic, similar to the case that we're talking about here today. Besides this somewhat unusual feature of being community-acquired infections, um, it had a couple of other fairly distinctive features. The first was that the classic presentation was uh, an hepatic abscess, either one or multiple but in the absence of biliary tract disease, uh, usually when we get uh, multiple hepatic abscesses that most commonly occurs with abnormalities in the biliary tract, some form of obstruction, ascending infection, uh, and therefore a formation of hepatic abscesses. But these individuals had normal uh, biliary tracts, which was somewhat of an unusual feature. But what was most unusual was this propensity for multiple sites of infection, Sometimes multiple sites of infection were present upon presentation. Sometimes some were recognized after their initial presentation. Uh, infection of the liver in the form of abscesses being most common, but virtually any site of the body could be involved. And unusual sites for club pneumonia as well. Not only multiple sites, but central nervous system infections in the form of brain abscesses or meningitis, necrotizing fasciitis, Similar to this case, epidural or paraspinal abscesses as well. Uh, pneumonias could commonly occur. Uh, and one of the most frightening ones would be uh, endophthalmitis. And when endophthalmitis is caused by uh, a bacterium, the window to be able to effectively treat that without resulting blindness or significant loss of vision is extraordinarily small. Uh, And so these features were really quite distinctive um, and uh, unusual for gram-negative rods, as we talked about earlier. Gram-negative rods usually are not good at uh, metastatically spreading. If one looks at, for example, the most common gram-negative rod that causes bacteremia, uh, extraintestinal pathogenic E. coli, it's extraordinarily unusual for, for example, heart valves to be seeded by E. coli, and when it, does seed heart valves or a site outside of the original uh, location of infection. Um, it's usually if that area is diseased, and so the heart valves may be extraordinarily calcific, like a bicuspid aortic valve. This hypervirulent clepsil pneumonia was behaving quite differently, almost like staph aureus in some respects, except the sites of infection were a myriad, much more expansive than staph aureus ever does. So something clearly was different here. Uh, and maybe I'll, I'll stop there. There's a lot to talk about this pathogen. But I think uh, some of those distinctions in terms of healthcare-associated versus community, single versus multiple sites of infection, and unusual sites of infection are some significant clinical clues that this may be a hyperviral Klebsiella pneumoniae strain causing that particular infection.
0: Yeah, and I think one question that's come up in my mind for these patients is, I knew that uh, there are certainly reports of an and that is very concerning. But I was wondering, do you have a different threshold to, if you knew or suspect hypervirulent Klebsiella, to get an op- ophthalmology exam? Because obviously, it's not something that we generally would get in a gram-negative bacteremia case.
1: Yeah, I think that that should almost be the standard of care when we suspect an individual might have an infection with hypervirulent uh, Kleb. And the reason is that, you know, if you're going to, if this individual is destined to develop endophthalmitis, the window is so tight between identification, be able to save that eye or vision that one needs to act extraordinarily quickly. So having the ophthalmologist on board, plus their early examination might be able to identify some early signs that we would certainly uh, miss. Uh, So uh, I always involve ophthalmologists whenever and as soon as possible that I suspect someone might have a hypervirulent with club infection.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, our patient has a uh, had a normal eye exam. So he had many sites of disease, but fortunately his eye was not one of those. Um, and so I, I think that some of the ID fellows who are listening probably are already thinking about string test. But for those who are listening who don't know much about hypervil klebsiella or maybe you've never heard of string test. Can you talk to us about that and how useful it is? and also if there are other alternative ways that we could try to identify if the klebsiella that is growing in culture is the hypervelin versus the classical?
1: Sure. So let me take a step back for one second. Because one of the problems that we have right now, which is not insignificant, is the clinical microbiology lab is unable to tell you when a Klebsiella pneumoniae strain grows, whether it's hypervirulent or classical. Uh, Presently, there's no approved test to differentiate these two strains. And we could get into a little bit about what makes uh, hypervirulent Kleb so virulent. And and this is something that we're still learning about and studying in the laboratory. But some of those genes that are responsible could potentially... uses biomarkers as well. But I think as clinicians, if there's this sort of um, uh, presentation that we discussed, uh, multiple sites of infection, unusual sites of infection, particularly from someone from the community, and then the last feature that I think it's worth discussing, and it's also relevant in this case, particularly in individuals of Asian or Pacific Islander and perhaps Hispanic background, as these individuals seemed more likely to be have infections with hyperviral and Klebsiella pneumoniae, and perhaps it's due to a genetic predisposition, though, that hasn't been resolved yet. That clinical uh, scenario should raise concern for that. However, what's become increasingly problematic, and this has been observed mostly in the countries of the Asian Pacific Rim, where the majority of these infections have been recognized and the prevalence is much higher than in Western countries, albeit these infections occur all the time in Western countries, just at lower rates at this time, is that it seems to be infiltrating the healthcare system as well. So not only are there uh, individuals that present from the community, but now there's healthcare-associated infections, there's nosocomial infections, and to make matters worse, and I don't know if we'll have enough time to talk about it, hypervirulent strains of Klebsiella, which were initially extraordinarily antimicrobial sensitive, uh, are now becoming increasingly antimicrobial resistant. So they can mimic classical strains both in terms of their antimicrobial resistance profile and if infections occur in patients that are ill with comorbidities or immunocompromised, you might not think of it as being a hypervirulent strain unless... Uh, the multiple sites of infection or unusual sites of infection rears its ugly head. Uh, So I'm just sort of throwing it out there that the clinical definition is imperfect, but at least if those clinical features exist, just to say, hey, I'm concerned about this, uh, and so that you can engage the appropriate consultants that we talk about. You could do the appropriate workup for look for occult sites of infection or abscesses that might need site control or site-specific antimicrobial therapy, such as the prostate or central nervous system. Engage the ophthalmologists uh, as, as needed as well. Uh, but those clinical um, hints or clues may not always be there. Um, now, Going back to what features could be present in the clinical microbiology lab, the strains of hypervirulent Klebsiella pneumoniae tend to have a phenotype that we call hypermucoviscous, and that's manifested as a, uh, their capsule, which all pathogenic Gram negatives tend to have, has these unique properties where if you then touch a colony with an inoculation loop and lift it straight up, it forms what we call a string. And this is suggestive that the strain may be a hypervirulent cleb. However, it's important to note that not all hypervirulent clebs have a positive string test and the formal definition is is greater than five millimeters. Uh, And likewise, uh, some classical strains may be string test positive as well. But it may be a clue, particularly when you don't have access to more sophisticated biomarker testing, um, that this could be a hypervirulent, uh, uh klepcylla pneumoniae. You often see that test in case reports. Uh, however, when you look at strain collections, its, it's uh, sensitivity and specificity is less than excellent. And there's some other biomarkers that are, are uh, more sensitive. However, unfortunately... Uh, They're not generally available in the clinical microbiology lab.
0: I see. Well, I think trying to think about when we encounter this clinically and managing it, you know, I think we can get to antibiotics in a second, but I was wondering from a source control perspective, with these metastatic infections often causing abscesses, are there any difficulties with source control or drain it, anything different that we should think about with this pathogen versus maybe a different hepatic abscess, for example?
1: The source control approach, I think, is quite similar. So if it's accessible and is significantly large enough, pure cutaneous drainage works really quite well. There is some caveats with that, Because we mentioned these phenotypic properties of it being uh, hypermucoviscous, you want to use the largest bore drainage catheter possible and have multiple flushes performed or the catheters get clogged quite easily. Uh, So I think that's a caveat that's uh, worth remembering. Um, As I mentioned before, as well, depending on what sort of imaging was done, let's say, for example... Someone comes in uh, and it's a suspected hepatic abscess or has abdominal pain. That's the only imaging study that's done as a CT of the abdomen. It's critical to look for other occult sites of infection that, as we already discussed, uh, may require source control as well and or some site-specific modifications into antimicrobial uh, therapy. But other than that, I think the approaches are generally the same Um you know, we could talk a little bit about duration of treatment. There is a small, more anecdotal literature that individuals with hyperviral and pneumonia infections do tend to have either a relapse or a reinfection at a rate greater than you might expect as well. Uh, But I think that speaks more for us feeling our way out in terms of how long to treat these individuals. Um, The principles of source control, I think, remain unchanged.
0: Yeah. Um, and you started to talk a little bit about antimicrobial resistance. And, and I thought we could talk a little bit about what agents we have available to us. And generally, I think of these as having less antimicrobial resistance compared to those superbug clubs that you were talking about. But um, can you talk a little bit about treating these infections with antibiotics?
1: Obviously, we want to be guided by our susceptibility results. The initial hypervirulent uh, Klebsiella strains were very antimicrobial sensitive. You know, Klebsiella pneumoniae has uh, innate resistance to uh, ampicillin. But other than that, they were sensitive to all of the usual agents that we would uh, treat gram negatives with. However, uh, over the last decade or so, there has been increasing resistance, mostly described in the uh, Asian Pacific Rim countries, but it's been described across the globe and it occurs in sort of two varieties. Uh, one, a hypervirulent strain then acquires a conjugal plasmid that encodes antimicrobial resistant genes and therefore confers resistance to those genes that happen to be present. Uh, so initially strains uh, that, uh, present, uh, that uh, possess extended spectrum beta lactamases or less commonly carbapenemases were being described. The other variation of this, which is Perhaps more concerning is that uh, classical strains of Klebsiella pneumoniae that were initially extensively drug resistant were actually acquiring the virulence plasmid from hypervirulent Klebsiella pneumoniae. And we haven't really talked about why hypervirulent Klebsiella pneumoniae is so virulent, but it, this is due at least in large part to a very large virulence plasmid that doesn't contain at least initially, any antimicrobial resistance determinants, but a number of genes that make it more virulent. And through some uh, hybridization with some conjugal plasmids, uh, this plasmid can occasionally then uh, be transferred to a classical strain that's already has antimicrobial resistance. And, and therefore, any of these combinations, a hypervirulent strain acquiring resistance genes or a uh, a resistant or an XDR classical strain, strain that acquires the virulence plasmid, this now creates the true superbug. Not only yeah. is it <laughs> <That's> antimicrobial <scary. laughs> resistant, uh, but it has significantly increased virulence as well. Uh, and, and so that is a, a bad combination. And uh, needless to say, those of us that uh, are studying hypervirulent Kleb are quite concerned if this trend progresses uh, both in the community and in the healthcare settings, we're going to have a potential pathogen that's going to be both difficult to treat and extraordinarily capable of causing invasive severe disease.
0: Yeah. And I, that, that was going to be one of my questions was, you know, why is it so virulent? And, you know, as you were mentioning that and and kind of talking about this trend towards being present in healthcare settings, is there anything from an infection control perspective that we should do for prevention?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and it's an unanswered question. And, and so, yeah. uh, you know, this is a pathogen that's, uh, one, not optimally recognized. It's often when I talk to people, it's sort of a, a new pathotype of Klebsiella pneumonia. Everyone knows about, in, in this part of the world anyway, everyone knows about classical Klebsiella. Uh, but uh, few people have heard of hypervirulent club, though I think our understanding and awareness of this has been increasing over time, and, and so I think this is a good podcast to uh, sort of disseminate this knowledge, uh, particularly uh, among the fellows, which will be our next generation of infectious diseases uh, uh, physician. Um, I think that in terms of uh, infection control, Obviously, if it's, um, and depending on, you know, different hospitals do have different policies in terms of yeah. how to handle ISBLs, but certainly carbona- carbapenemase-producing strains, uh, regardless if it's classical or if it happens to be a hypervirulent strain uh, that now uh, has that combination of both uh, hypervirulence and antimicrobial uh, resistance, you then isolate uh, and do contact precautions with those individuals. I think what a more outstanding question is is if you have a an antimicrobial sensitive hypervirulent strain, and we can maybe talk a little bit about um, you know spread and entry, which is somewhat of a black box. What do you do with those individuals? Um, they don't pose the antimicrobial resistance problem, and I think we could all agree we don't want such strains, even if they're sensitive <laughs> to antimicrobials, to be spreading Floating through around, our hospital yeah. wards or our ICU patients, right? So. Yeah. Uh, the few cases that we've recognized here in Buffalo, New York, we have instituted contact precautions mm. for these patients, uh, uh, just being extraordinarily cautious, uh, not wanting this, hosp- this organism to settle into a uh, hospital uh, yeah. and uh, put our patients at risk. But it has not been formally studied, and whether there's a true advantage of that and the likelihood of spread is, is yet to be elucidated. Uh, but that's how I've been approaching it. It's an organism that is, I think, quite worrisome. And so being conservative and employing infection control measures uh, seems appropriate to me from that point of view.
0: Yeah. Um, and, you know, our patient ended up being treated with a pretty long course of ceftraxone and did a, about eight weeks, which was guided by radiographic improvement and resolution of his abscess. I don't know if you have any other tips or thoughts about duration of therapy? I think, you know, a lot of it depends certainly on where their infection was, but um, any extra thoughts?
1: No, I I like that approach a lot, actually. I often use that. And, you know, I know we all want to, you know, when we have an infectious syndrome, say, ah, it's going to be days of the week or yeah. numbers <laughs> of fingers or toes and things like that. Um, yeah. um, but unfortunately, as you know, um, most often, we, one, don't have a clear definition of duration of therapy for many of our individuals that are infected. And I think when we're dealing um, with hypervirulent CLEB, that is, uh, you know, causes abscesses of varying size in a variety of locations Uh, many of which could be extraordinarily sensitive, uh, you know, in terms of epidural abscesses or paraspinal processes or central nervous system disease, et cetera. Uh, You know, you want to be sure that you've eradicated the pathogen. So I, I love the concept of using, you know, if we've got objective radiographic evidence of the extent of disease and the magnitude of disease, using that as a tool to guide the duration of therapy. And if uh, I I tend to use the principle, knowing that there tends to be either relapses or potentially reinfection, which sometimes could be very difficult to differentiate uh, with this pathogen, I tend to use sort of the guideline until objective evidence of the abscess is gone, plus a little bit.
0: <laughs> it, it, it's <laughs> probably right. a bit.
1: <laughs> it's probably a bit overkill, uh, yeah. and um, um, you know, and uh, I'll you know, I think all infectious disease physicians would actually love an objective test to know when, uh, you know, the bacteria are dead. And (laughs) I'm just going to throw it out there in terms of, you know, looking forward to the future, which I'm not quite sure if I'll see or not. There's some interesting research data on the use of PET scans And actually different labeled carbohydrates that are bacteria specific, that may be a new guide for such uh, complicated infections (laughs) and how long to treat. So that, um, you know, if the bacteria are are metabolically active, then they'll light up on these PET scans and if they're no longer there or not metabolically active, they won't, even though there'll be, you know, sort of residual tissue damage that will show up on, on, the, uh, on a, C, a regular CT or MR, for example. So there is hope for some more logical <laughs> duration of therapy than a more blunt tool uh, sort of, of uh, resolution of radiographic findings. Um, but given the concerning nature of this pathogen, as long as the patient is tolerating therapy... And often it could be done, uh, you know, on an outpatient basis. Uh, and in this case, I believe ceftroxone was used, which is yeah. a good outpatient drug. Uh, that's the direction I've been leaning on, uh, leaning towards right now.
0: Yeah. And, th- you know, my goal with this was to really just remind everyone that this pathogen is out there and and those key concepts of metastatic infection Um And so whenever this comes up on rounds, I always send everyone the clinical microbiology review you did on Klebsiella, and I'll post it in our um, written component to the show because it's my resource whenever I have questions about this pathogen. But one of my favorite things is in... In that paper, you have a table that is just talking about the different knowledge gaps that we have for hypervirulent klebsiella. And so as we wrap up, I thought I would just ask you, what are you most looking forward to finding out and learning about, about this bug in the future?
1: So there's three. I'm going to give you my top three. That always okay, seems I'll take it. <laughs> It's either like a top 10 list or top three list, right? So I'm Perfect. going to go with the top three list. Uh, so the first thing I'd love to know, and all of these are on this table and plus more, so I guess we could stretch this uh, for, the, for the interested reader, they could go beyond the three yeah. <laughs> um, We touch base on this, and I think it's a critically important question. Um, the majority of infections due to hyperviralypsiular pneumonia have been described in people of uh, Asian extraction and/or Pacific Islander or, and uh, likely Hispanic. Uh, background, ethnic background as well. This suggests the likelihood of a genetic predisposition. However, all ethnic groups have had infections with hypervirent klepsil, pneumoniae, which then also raises the possibility that perhaps it's not a genetic predisposition, but it's really uh, that the first step of infection is colonization, and therefore you have to be colonized to subsequently get infected. And we'll get to my second uh, knowledge gap uh, in one second that has to do with that entry step. Um, but it may be that acquisition is actually the key element. And for some reason, uh, in the Asian Pacific Rim uh, and the various Pacific Islands, some combination of uh, either environmental factors, and this being in the environment, uh, maybe not that dissimilar to Burkhold area, Amaliai and pseudo Um, that it's uh, more common in the environment and or more common in the food, you're more likely to get colonized. And then that's the first step that could potentially predispose you to getting infected. So that is a, you know, this sort of um, geospecific acquisition versus genetic predisposition is unanswered. And it should be somewhat straightforward to answer, I think, in terms of, you know, getting patient cohorts, um, with hypervirulent club infections, uh, and, and those without and, uh, and doing the appropriate genetic studies, but it's yet to be done. Uh, few people study this. And so for people out there that are, have interest in this, this is a, a great project that be, would be extraordinarily, uh, important. It's interesting in the case that we discussed that the individual was Vietnamese, but hadn't been to Vietnam for 15 years, I believe, per history. Yeah. Um, we also know, though, that Klebsiella pneumonia can colonize people for, for years, uh, and certainly at least 8 to 10 years, perhaps 15. So again, it, it sort of begs the question, has this individual been colonized for 15 years, and then disease finally manifested itself? Or uh, did this individual acquire um, you know, the hypervirulent Kleb while in the U.S.? Uh, And, of course, it remains an unanswered question, um, but it's uh, intriguing. I think the second knowledge gap that I'm quite interested in, we do know from studies um, from Korea uh, and elsewhere that uh, colonization is much more common than individuals getting disease. So this isn't like typhoid fever, where if you're immunologically naive, you ingest uh, 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 Salmonella typhi, there's, you know, maybe not 100%, but an extraordinarily high likelihood that you're going to develop typhoid fever It's because and the mechanism has been well worked out in terms of invasion of higher patches at the molecular level. It's a fascinating story that this uh, uh, pathogen is extraordinarily facile in crossing uh, that barrier with its unique uh, virulence mechanisms. The fact with hypervirulent CLEB that there are many people that colonize it but have no disease manifestations or, or previously, or you know at the time the studies were done, suggests that it doesn't have that capability. So how does it enter? Uh, remember that many individuals that get these infections could be young and healthy from the community. So they also, un, it's unlikely that they have mucosal abnormalities. You know, sometimes we postulate, for example, uh, certain strep, bovis, et cetera, you know, uh, take advantage of mucosal disruptions and are able to cause bacteremias and, and seeding from there. Um, but the fact that we have so many young people that could develop this infection suggests that might not be the case either. So does it have some sort of mechanism of entry, like, for example, uh, salmonella typhi, but it's much less, uh, efficient. Um, there's a single paper that individuals that were treated with ampicillin for other reasons had a bump in the hypervirulent club infections. And this was a paper out of Japan. Does that suggest perhaps that we know since hypervirulent club is resistant to ampicillin, that that increased uh, sort of the colonic burden. And maybe if you get a critical colonic burden that, uh, makes entry more facile. Again, uh, an unstudied area, Uh, we don't know. Obviously, if we understood the mechanism of entry, then we could design strategies to prevent that entry. So another very important research area that's a huge black box. And then finally, the one that I find extraordinarily intriguing, why is it able to cause multiple sites of infection in a metastatically spread virtually in the body, right? I mean, love to know the answer to that one. And uh, uh, unquestionably, uh, either on its virulence plasmid and there's uh, some differences and in some integrated chromosomal uh, elements in the, uh, as well, or perhaps it's lost some chromosomal genes that actually uh, classical Clepsula pneumoniae does have, uh, and that's been the case for other pathogens uh, in the past. Actually, it's not always necessarily gaining genes. Occasionally, it's uh, loss of some critical genes that can make a, a particular bacterium more virulent uh, Perhaps, uh, you know, the, the, the key gene is there to be found or a key set of genes is there to be found. Um, something that I've speculated on, and, and perhaps uh, it's not an actual gene per se, uh, we discussed earlier, we talked about the, uh, you know, the hypermucoviscous phenotype or the mucoviscous phenotype where, you know, causes this positive string test. People that study bacteremias from other bacteria know actually that um, when you have a bacteremia, bacteria often travel not just as a single planktonic bacterium, but sometimes they're in tiny little clumps and pairs of clusters. Perhaps with hypervirin club, because of this unique mucoviscous phenotype, it actually forms much bigger clusters. Maybe they stick together. Again, this is totally speculative so that these bigger clumps then when they hit end vessels stick almost like maybe little mini emboli uh, and that enables uh, them to cause infections and spread at multiple sites. Totally speculative. It's actually something that uh, some people that study physical properties of bacteria and some uh, sort of ex vivo in vitro systems uh, could potentially look at as well. So those are my top three for knowledge gaps. There's many, many more that are delineated in that paper and table two. Yeah. Um, but I think that would be a great start for us to uh, not only further understand this pathogen, but then to develop key either preventative strategies uh, and or better treatment strategies as well. Yeah.
0: So interesting. I am so grateful that you came and shared all your knowledge about this organism, but hopefully this will also inspire some people to be on the lookout for the infection, or maybe there's some ID fellows who are thinking about research projects. So I, I think this is this is really, really wonderful. And I thank you so much for your time.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. It is great to be able to share this information and uh, certainly, hopefully we can increase awareness and uh, yeah. maybe inspire some individuals to greatness that they can solve some <laughs> of these major knowledge gaps. Uh, that we'll be waiting. Be really, that would be great to see, wouldn't it?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Thank you everyone for listening and I hope you keep this organism in mind, an interesting gram negative that can disseminate to cause metastatic disease quite similar to staph aureus. Don't forget to check out the website, febralpodcast.com to find the consult notes, which are written compliments to the show with links to references, as well as the Febral Library of ID Infographics. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or you want to be more involved with Febral. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.